Your brain needs support, and new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L theanine, and caffeine, Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com wonder. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the New Books in Education, a podcast channel of the New Books Network. I'm your host, Elisa Prosperetti. Today, I will be talking to Professor Christian Udesen about his new edited volume, The OECD's Historical Rise in Education, The Formation of a Global Governing Complex. The book was published in 2019 by Palgrave Macmillan as part of the Global Histories of Education book series. Christian is an associate professor in the Department of Culture and Learning at Aalborg University in Denmark. He's the primary investigator on the research project, The Global History of the OECD in Education, which I believe is the wellspring of this edited volume that we're gonna discuss today. And while his home is decidedly in Denmark, he's also been a visiting scholar in Scotland and in England, most recently at Oxford University. Christian, welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much, Elisa, thanks for having me. So I must begin by congratulating you and your collaborators on making something like the OECD this interesting. Thank you very much. Because that's that's a tall order. Um, I've seen some of the source material that I think you've worked with and it can get to be a little dry. So I want to reassure everyone who might be listening that this conversation will not be dry because it's based on a book that actually makes the OECD something quite fascinating and much more complex and layered than I think we we might assume on the outside. So tell us a little bit about yourself. How did you get interested in the history of education? Well, um, when I first applied for my PhD scholarship, it was a scholarship already defined. It was defined as a history of testing. So uh, even though I'm a a, a general historian who didn't know much about uh, history of education, you know, I applied for this scholarship and then I sort of became specialized in the history of testing and assessment in uh, in Denmark primarily, but with a very transnational and uh, outward looking perspective about how intelligence testing moved from Paris to uh, Stanford, moved to Scotland, moved to England, and also to Denmark and Scandinavia in a a wider sense. So um, that was sort of my main uh, stepping stone into the field. 
Um, after that, I was fortunate enough to be part of a, a, a big research project on the history of UNESCO. So, um, and there we looked at the impact of UNESCO in historical uh, perspective. And uh, well, basically, when you put these two stepping stones together, the testing and UNESCO, well, when I had to define my own research project, yeah, then came up the OECD. Right, it makes perfect sense, a logical stepping stone. So um, when we're thinking about, about the OECD and, and you know, how you got there through testing and through UNESCO, how do you see those two pieces as, um, as connecting to form your pathway to the OECD? Well, um, I think that there are very significant differences, of course, between UNESCO and the OECD. Um, and it's not to say that UNESCO isn't engaged in testing, because they are, especially in the Latin America. But um, they do have some particular traits when I look at the OECD, and that is exactly the, the testing, the assessment, the indicators. So that's really what I wanted to explore further. And then I discovered this whole wonderful field of research about global education policy, global education governance, but not many people in that field work with it from a historical perspective. So I still found that that would be like a niche that I could step into. Well, three cheers for the historians. We're always very interested in, in looking, looking backwards to understand how we got today, which, which I think is really, you know, the thrust of, of the contribution of this book. And you make some really interesting arguments about kind of the nature of power that the OECD wields when it comes to global education. And I do think that that's something that's that, that comes out of historical analysis. It's very hard to see kind of in the, if you start uh, from mm. the present. And, and, and we'll- Yeah, mm -hmm. exactly. Because if you look at the present, you know, there isn't much questioning of the role of the OECD, actually. It's sort of assumed that of course the OECD is a legitimate player in the field of global education, essentially, uh, especially with the PISA program and all its sort of offspring programs, and we can get back to them later. Um, but it wasn't sort of, uh, it wasn't written in the stars to begin with that the OECD was going to work in education, you see. Um, it was very much uh, established on the basis of the uh, Organization for European Economic Cooperation called the OEEC, which was uh, formed in, um, in 1948. Um, in connection with the American martial aid to Western Europe. So that organization was engaged in distributing this martial aid, but also in uh, trying to create a, like an, uh, an ideological fog screen against the communists in the East. Uh, so it was also a question of how you would commit Western Europe to the American way of doing business. So they had something called the European Productivity Agency. Um, and in the book, uh, Regula Bürki has written a chapter on that. And um, the interesting thing in terms of education here is that the Americans would, would uh, invite uh, business leaders, politicians, decision makers, union leaders, even to the United States to, to, to see how things are done or were done in the United States. And uh, they would sort of take back that knowledge to, to Europe. So it was uh, an effort to sort of mold 
Western Europe in the American image in a way. Um, and it only makes sense when you take into consideration the Cold War, the bipolar context of the Cold War. Uh, so it's very much about uh, economics at first, but then comes the Sputnik shock in 1957. And uh, that really created uh, shock waves through the Western world. And uh, there was a very um, strong opinion uh, among decision makers that something needed to be done. And especially in the field of uh, technical education, engineering education, um, because otherwise you would lose the space race, essentially. So that really put education on the agenda within the OEEC. And um, then they created this uh, program called the Mediterranean Regional Project, where they wanted to look at how sort of backward regions of Europe could be improved or boosted from uh, educational initiatives uh, better education planning, better investment in education. So that that became sort of like a, a template for a lot of the OECD's early programs in education. Then the, the organization transitioned into the OECD in 1961, because you could maybe say in the late 50s that, well, why do we need this organization? Why don't we just shut it down? But um, I think there was still a very strong sense among the Western nations that it was really good to have a forum where we can get together, where we can discuss and talk and lay plans and we view the world in the same way. And, you know, the United Nations system, it's, it's really bureaucratic and you have to listen to what the global South has to say, essentially. So maybe it's not such a nice thing to say, but I think that was a very, uh, a, 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 an important factor in, in, in keeping the OEEC around and then it transitioned into the OECD because the United States and Canada joined. And uh, there you would see um, a strong focus on, on education in, in the 1960s, uh, culminating with the establishment of, uh, of the Center for Educational Research and Innovation in 1968. So um, in that sense, it was... Yeah, I wouldn't. I'm not sure if it, it was like a coincidence that education came on the on the agenda, but certainly it wasn't there right from the start. But then it it sort of uh, gained a momentum within the organization, um, and of course now the PISA program is one of the most important programs that the OECD even runs altogether, even though it is still in essence an economic organization, right? And I think that's so fascinating, this part of the story, how, how I guess because the OECD is born as part of this Cold War context, it's a quintessential Cold War institution. You know, as you say, it's, it's really born in this kind of insider capitalist club, trying to make sure that that club remains and potentially expands. And that education gets swept up into, um, in, in, into this kind of Cold War logic. And I think nothing distills this change in the thinking around education more aptly than the, the, the quote by Francis Keppel with which you begin uh, your chapter, the opening chapter of this book, which I'm sure everyone has heard, but I didn't know certainly that it came from this early OECD conference from 1961 in Washington, where he says famously, the fight for education is too important to be left solely to the educators. Yeah. 
Exactly. Can you read that 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 citation for us, kind of historically, because it's one that is you know seen on posters. But what does it really mean when it was said at that time? Mm. Well, it meant first and foremost that education has a distinct geopolitical component that it's also about power relations. And there are some other interesting quotes that I found in the US National Archives about uh, uh, high level officials seeing education as a vehicle for really exporting the uh, American um, way of life, but also uh, retaining American and expanding American influence in the world. So this idea that education, it's not just about you know, curriculum and didactics and learning and getting smarter or stuff like that. It's also about geopolitics. And um, the Sputnik shock is, is certainly a catalyst for that. And I think that is in this sense that uh, we should understand this quote that you, uh, that you mentioned. We can't just leave it to the educators um, to think about education. It's, it's much, much too important in terms of geopolitical influence and the geopolitical positions of, of nation states and even uh, ideologic, uh, ideological components also, not least in, in the Cold War. So in a sense, the, the way that education becomes associated with the OECD or the way that the OECD associates itself with education you know, from the early 1960s, you know, going forward now into the PISA era is, is one in which, and this is a tension that you kind of uh, distill in the book between a humanistic or an economistic understanding of education and that the OECD gets to the topic of working in education through that economistic portal. Um, and in some sense, I think pushes out humanistic concerns or what we might think about, you know, as uh, a pedagogy or anything that is outside of the kind of economistic production factor sphere. So, and, and some of the contributions in the volume really, uh, really address the emergence of this economistic thinking around education. So how, how do you see this emerging? And um, how do you see the OECD as kind of grabbing on to these ideas in order to muscle itself a place in the international landscape? Well, first and foremost, in the approach to education, which is very much about um, investment in education and uh, manpower planning, uh, developing of indicators, uh, a sense of comparison at first and later on maybe more sort of competition, um, among education systems or economies, as the OECD likes to call it. So it is, um, yeah, it's true that I draw this distinction in the book. Um, and it makes sense when you look at what is the purpose of education, because in, in, many, in many people's opinion and in, in many countries, you know, education is first and foremost seen as a provider of an educated labor force that would, you know, sustain the labor market and increase the gross domestic product. Whereas uh, others would say that education also has a purpose in developing and enriching uh, the human being and uh, equipping the individual for leave, uh, living uh, rich lives in the context in which they live. 
And it becomes very clear in a, in a Danish context when you contrast uh, the 1970s with the contemporary time, because in the 1970s, the, the purpose of education really was to educate critically oriented, democratic, happy citizens. So that was the purpose of education, really. Uh, whereas now it's much more about, you know, um, boosting competences, making sure that you are able to, to, to cope on the labor market of tomorrow. So in that sense, you are essentially your own little business, you know, uh, you're cultivating your own CVs, uh, making yourself employable, um, all the sort of the, in a way, what some people would call the new liberal turn or the new liberal transition of the human being. Right. So that's that's the contrast that I I like to draw, because clearly, you know, I mean, whenever you open up a black box of history, you know, things get gets nuanced. Right. And of course, in the OECD uh, isn't just the OECD, you know, it has multiple offices, departments and projects populated by sometimes very different people, especially the, the sort of uh, temporary projects where they would get. Uh, experts from different countries, from different contexts to work. And they might have some of these sort of more humanistic ideals, and that might also reflect in OECD reports. But even so, I find that as long as they draw on the work of, of, of Erik Hanusiek, for instance, who is a, a famous economist of, of education, and, and who has been making this argument about an increase in PISA scores will generate a, a, a rise in the gross domestic product. Um, then I would argue that the most sort of influential trend-setting publications of the OECD fall within what I call the economistic uh, approach to education, even though you might find some, you know, diversions, or even also now in PISA, they talk about how you can also uh, implement soft skills, uh, you know, uh, appreciating the multicultural nature of the world, uh, uh, sense of collaboration, those sort of things. But in PISA, it's always very, very strongly connected with the economistic uh, competences that you need to develop in order to be able to stay employable in a globalized world. This really is at the heart of, of what you identify as the kind of power of, of that the OECD wields, which is this uh, constant intervisibility, this constant comparison, this constant competition, um, this, this pitching one against another or multiple against each other, and, and that that is distilled with these data sets, really, that that is somehow the main, the baseline by which we can perceive the other. Mm. Uh, uh, it, it, that's what it, it seems is, is really um, one of the, the nodes of, of power of the OECD. Yeah. And I, I think one way that you describe it really well is by explaining that this power, particularly among policymakers of the OECD, comes from the fact that they provide numbers to which policymakers and politicians can ascribe narratives. Mm. Yeah. And it's, 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 it's such a, a beautiful phrase, I think, because it gives us a sense of um, kind of the hard spine behind everything that is layered on top 
is really uh, this what is quantified. Hmm. Exactly. Um, it is all about how can you make the world comparable. And for doing that, uh, you need to say all other things being equal, which means that you have a complete disregard for context. Um, so the OECD's governing mechanisms is very much, you know, as you say, the data, uh, which they actually took over from the member states, because in the early years, they had problems with member states feeding uh, the OECD with very uh, diverse data and different definitions. And, you know, so they couldn't really compare them. So the OECD sort of took over the, the data gathering and they now have this huge data bank and they have much more data than, than the nation states do. So in that sense, that's also an incentive to stay on, you know, this super tanker that the OECD really is. Um, but also the, the development of, of, of policy instruments, for instance, like, like PISA, they have engaged in policy evaluation um, and uh, also what is called the multilateral surveillance among member and participating states. And it just means that, you know, maybe you, I, I don't know if you've, you've heard that concept about the epistemic community, but it's, it's sort of the same idea that the high level officials, politicians, but also uh, to some extent practitioners who are involved with the OECD or experts, they sort of come together in the OECD and, and they share a, a view of the world or they, they come to share a, a view of the world in terms of problem identification, but also in terms of problem solutions. And when they come back to their own context, you know, they sort of been, been, been influenced by that. So they share an, an episteme, you could say. So the multilateral surveillance is that you also create instruments that make very visible whether you are green, yellow, or red in terms of different indicators. And of course, it's not such a funny thing as a as a high-level official to, to come to a meeting in the OECD and your country is all red. You know, you, I mean, <laughs> you want to be green, right? You want to be part of the good company. Um, so, so in that sense, even though the OECD doesn't have a specific mandate to work in education like UNESCO does, it still is able to wield this kind of power um, by multilateral surveillance, but also, as you said before, the data and the creation of the data that allows different interpretations, for sure. It, it allows different receptions in different countries. So you wouldn't just say that, so everything becomes the same. It's like, a, uh, like a, an extreme version of world, world culture theory or something like that, where the world just becomes, you know, uh, uh, identical, um, but more that um, politicians, decision makers also get this OECD data and maybe also some OECD policy recommendations, but then they sort of translate them into their own context. So there's, there are some examples of the OECD uh, maybe not wanting to go as far as the member countries have done. So Sweden is one example. They have for-profit schools, something that now the OECD warns, warns of, you know. And uh, in, in, in Denmark, there was an example that uh, the high-level officials in the ministry wanted to have national tests for ranking purposes 
Whereas the OECD, the head of, of the OECD delegation, which was Peter Mortimer, Professor Peter Mortimer from, from London, said, well, don't do that. Please don't do that. It would be a mistake to do that. But even though, even so, they continued. So it's not to say, you know, everything becomes the same, but it's just that the data is made available and the OECD sort of holds this sort of promise in a way that's sort of built into this sort of legitimacy that it wields that if you are doing well in our programs, if you are green all along the scoreboards, if you follow our policy recommendations, we guarantee or we can assure that you are on the right track in this competition that is globalization and your nation is on track to be prosperous and successful. And I think that's a very, very powerful narrative that also explains why countries keep joining uh, PISA and, and keep engaging with OECD programs. They, they, they dare not opt out, to, to put it in another way. So, um, so interesting, really well explained. And I think what you've just come to describe is what the, you know, the subtitle of the book and, and what you uh, put forward as a global education governing complex that is this mix of various factors that is a, a form of governance, economistic thinking, uh, and, and education and soft power and all kind of snowballing into, um, in, into this, this kind of diffuse but also very particular nature um, of the OECD's power. But the OECD, as you say, and I think maybe we should come back to this, isn't born as an educational organization, right? The one that should be is UNESCO. That, that has it in the title, it's, it's, that is its mandate. And at some point in the 60s, UNESCO really is the kind of clearinghouse for educational data. They're the ones that have the best data from the most places and they, they lose ground. You know, through by I think after 1968 is really a big turning point, right? With massive global critiques of a very uh, banking model, to use Paulo Freire's term, uh, education systems. And at that moment, you see that UNESCO, particularly then in the 70s, kind of loses ground. And I think the OECD gains ground with the foundation of Syria in the, the 1968, but also the World Bank is in the background starting to get really interested in education products under um, Robert McNamara. So how do you kind of uh, think through the OECD's transition in the late 60s and 1970s? Because I think we focused, you know, on the 60s and on now, but what about that period there? What's happening? Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's a really interesting question because, and it's, it's actually, some of the things that's most difficult to to investigate in terms of uh, historical sources because it's it's like a, a, a wall you know these international organizations they just seem to be working together and be aligned in many ways and it's still so you know they seem to to all gather around the sustainable development goals and so now the OECD would say that their education 2030 agenda is perfectly sustaining and underpinning the sustainable development goals but if we look at the 19 or in the early period as you 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 ask about clearly when the OECD set up its headquarters in Paris the uh, the UNESCO was really worried about it. So in the UNESCO archives, you will be able to find archival sources that sort of, uh, you know, you just get everything in the boxes, also internal memos and stuff like that. 
And that's really interesting because there you can see how, how worried they were. They said, so the OECD is imitating our work that we might now compete over the same kind of staff because they set up their headquarters in Paris like UNESCO did. Uh, they already had their headquarters there. So, um, so there is this um, anxiety in UNESCO, but still in that period, um, UNESCO had uh, at least... I would say a lot of legitimacy, especially with the with the global south and the developing uh, nations, um, and the OECD sort of only slowly moves into that uh, area. So they become interested in the 1970s uh, in uh, social policy, social indicators, um, and they develop also the uh, the ISCAD system, that, that is the uh, standard. St education statistics system together with UNESCO or they adopt the UNESCO system. So in that sense, the UNESCO is still like a, a trendsetter. Um, there's a little sort of side story to this because um, you're right in what you said about the clearinghouse in UNESCO and uh, that sort of evolved into what we now know as the IEA, the International Association for the Evaluation of Educational Achievement. So it's also an organization that works with um, what we call um, international large-scale assessments. And um, they sort of sprung from UNESCO and, and they, um, they run uh, the TIMS and the PEARLS, um, ILSAS. And uh, a lot of that methodology that the IEA actually developed fed into the OECD and the early PISA. In uh, 1988, the OECD launched um, the ENES project. It's uh, the Educational Indicators or International Indicators uh, program. And a lot of the methodology came from the IEA, also not least because um, Andreas Schleicher, who who is, well, perhaps known as Mr. Pisa nowadays, uh, he came from the IEA, so he, he had intimate knowledge about their methodology. So in that sense, there was some, there's a, like a methodological string that sprung from UNESCO initially, ran into the IEA, which is still around today, I should say, and then fed into the OECD. And that helped boost the OECD's position um, and there are also some scholars who, who mention uh, how, how the United States was very keen to get uh, the OECD to be the leading uh, statistics organization. So there was a lot of critical reviews of UNESCO statistics in the uh, 80s and 90s, uh, which, I mean, might also have helped the OECD to sort of swoop in and and become the major player uh, over UNESCO. And apart from that, you know, UNESCO has always been incredibly underfunded, especially because of the, the UK and the United States, who, who had some very sort of ambivalent relations or ideas about UNESCO, particularly uh, right-wing groups in the United States would be very, very sort of skeptical towards UNESCO because they feared it would be anti-patriotic. And they had this idea about um uh, you know you know global uh, global citizenship they feared like a world government 
uh, coming from UNESCO. So um, even though there were a lot of people very, very fond of UNESCO in the United States uh, and also in, in, in the office, uh, in the government um, departments, but, you know, it's been an ambivalent relation, right? And it, uh, it sort of uh, came very much to the fore in terms of funding. So the UNESCO never had the really the muscle that the OECD had to, to do these things, uh, international uh, comparisons. Yeah, exactly. Follow the yeah. money. It's, it's very yeah. often, very often uh, leads you to some answers. Um, so you talked about, you know, the, this critique of UNESCO statistics towards the end of the 20th century, the OECD kind of swooping in to, to try to to try to find its place as a purveyor of really, you know, excellent uh, statistical work. What, how, how do you as a historian engage with uh, the kind of sources that you work with to write this history and also with, mm. with data as a historical source? Um, how do you extract information from what can be, I think, you know, mm. quite, dry, mm. self-serving, uh, bureaucratic yeah. uh, reports. How do you really get the tensions that are, <laughs> that are being yeah, masked well, I guess, by those I types guess, of documents? Uh, at first glance, some of the things might be a bit dry, but, you know, uh, speaking as a historian, you know, I've never encountered once a topic that wasn't interesting once you got to, you know, understand it. Uh, and it, it's very much the same here. Well, in terms of the... Um, the sources, uh, it's mostly based on archival sources collected in the OECD archives and the UNESCO archives in, in Paris, and then also in some national archives in the United States and Brazil, uh, to some extent China uh, and, and Denmark. And the idea re here really was to be able to follow the uh, ingoing, outgoing mail from from the OECD headquarters and then see that, so how would that be received then in the national context? Because what's, while in the OECD archives, you don't get all the internal memos. Uh, I mean, you can get it, but you have to be very specific in asking for what you want to see, and then it has to be approved. And uh, maybe you don't know what you, what you want to see. Maybe you just want to see everything about the 60s or something like that. And that's too vague, you see, so you can't get that. But in the National Archives, there you would often get uh, the writings of the, uh, the high-level officials uh, saying, uh, you know, writing little memos about, so now we receive this and maybe it should go to that department. We need to get uh, some, some uh, input from this or that person or, you know. And so in that sense, it's been really interesting to, to follow the policy instruments into national contexts. And then on top of that, you can get the interviews where you can get people um, who were there, uh, retired officials um, who will explain maybe some things that you can't find in the archives, you know, something about, you know, moods and meetings, relations, uh, priorities, um, antagonisms even uh, among uh, people or departments, the kind of thing that you often don't find in official minutes uh, from from, uh, from one of these organizations. So, uh, yeah, it's been it's been really really wonderful to to explore this material and also to actually go to the OECD and visit this sort of where you 
where you sort of feel that you're in, in the very center of globalization. Once you pass through security uh, and you enter the big uh, uh, sort of uh, lobby where you have all the screens with all the meetings that are currently going on in the plenary rooms, then you really get an idea of how comprehensive this is. And that's where you get this feeling that you now stand in the very center of globalization. I remember I had that experience when I went to the World Bank and I went to its cafeteria. I remember seeing, you know, it's these kind of these, these peripheral spaces, you know, the, the main the entry hall, the cafeteria of these big international organizations, but they tell you so much about, about the pulse. And I remember at the cafeteria, every single food in the world was present and every single nationality seemed to be represented. Um, it really gives you, you know, that, that, that visceral feeling of the pulsing center of globalization. Yeah, absolutely. So we've really focused our conversation on the first part of, of this book, the, the kind of his, the most historical section about the origins and rise of the OECD yeah. in its education work. And I wondered if you uh, could describe for our audience briefly, you know, sections two and sections three of the book, if, if that was something yeah. that yeah, yeah, it's true. The first part is is very much about the 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 first period and the very sort of historical um, background. And uh, in the second part is where we look at specific uh, nation states uh, and national context. So we look at Australia and uh, Brazil and Denmark and China and uh, the southern cone countries in Latin America. So um, so that is where we really try to trace these um, policy instruments from the OECD into these national contexts. Whereas the, the third part of the book then is about how we look at the programs in a global perspective. So that's really a tour in the helicopter or, or, or even the space shuttle actually to, to, to get a look at how, what kind of trajectories and patterns do we see at the global level? So that is sort of the movement of the book from, from history to the national and then to the, the global uh, level. So uh, as we kind of bring this to a close, Christian, tell us a little bit about what you've recently been working on since this book came out two years ago now in 2019 and, and what you're thinking about working on next. Yeah, I'm currently working on a project on, on the paradoxes between assessment and inclusion. And as you know, in, in, in a, an academic career, you know, it's your former project is always like a stepping stone or a catapult for the next one. So um, I became really interested in, in, in human diversity and also going back to this, uh, the humanistic approach to education and, uh, and UNESCO's work in the Global Education Monitoring Report, the one on inclusive education that came out uh, a couple of years ago. Um, and then I sort of said, well, so if, if the world is sort of uh, so hooked up on, on assessment and indicators, as we've seen in the OECD project, then uh, I wanted to, to, to look at how, how, what are the human condition under that sort of reign? So that's why I, I, uh, I went to explore uh, the, these paradoxes, because I think there are some paradoxes there. It's about it's testing and assessment is very much about saying, so who is good enough? 
who can contribute in the right way that we want them to. Whereas inclusive education is more about, well, everyone is good enough and everyone is a valuable contributor to like uh, a classroom or a learning experience or whatever. So, uh, and it's, it's, that's the, exactly the paradox that we're now exploring also in a large um, comparative project um, uh, between Argentina, England, and Israel, uh, China, and, and Denmark. Of course, we're not covering the whole countries. It's just we look at practices in these different countries, countries and how do they actually balance concerns about assessment with concerns about inclusion or human diversity. So that's what I really look at now. Well, I think this is um, a really interesting and promising, you know, new, new direction because this is really the political moment. And uh, I think of, of this decade, which is, do we continue to, to focus on what we talk about as equality, which we then reduce to these indicators, right? So that there is this false baseline idea, or do we think about equity? which I think is, is closer to the idea of inclusion, that everyone has access to the same possibilities and opportunities, which, mm. which, which the numbers can hide, the numbers can obfuscate. Absolutely. And, yeah. Christian, thank you so much for taking the time to, to speak with us um, about this book. I really urge anyone who's interested to understand a little bit more about the black box of the OECD uh, to pick it up. And it's, a, you know, a read that really rewards. I think, I think you can spend, you know, a few hours with the book and get a lot out of it. And, and it will very helpfully explain to you what all those acronyms are that if you aren't, you know, fluent in the language of an international organization will, will kind of tend to, tend to muddle things more than clarify things. So thank you so much. And uh, I hope that we can speak again soon when the next book comes out. Thank you very much. And thanks for the interest.